I would not call carbon pricing dead. I could see it coming back in some form, maybe not the economy-wide carbon price that textbooks favor, but maybe something that, that starts on a more limited scale. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the Environmental Economics Program. Although many people in our global audience for this podcast series might think that little has been happening in the United States and in the climate and energy policy realms, the past few years have actually been a very busy time with some progress made, albeit surely limited by domestic political realities. Today, to talk about this and other matters and place it all in an economic perspective, we're fortunate to have with us Catherine Wolfram, the Cora Jane Flood Professor of Business Administration at the Haas School of Business at the University of California currently on leave as the visiting Raymond Planck Professor of Public Policy at my own institution, the Harvard Kennedy School, here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Welcome, Catherine, to Environmental Insights. Thanks so much, Rob. Great to be here. So in a few minutes, I'm eager to hear your thoughts about energy and climate change policy and, and for that matter, how they relate to trade policy. But first, let's go back to how you came to be where you are. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Minnesota, the Twin Cities. The Twin Cities. And does that mean primary and high school there? Um, It means through eighth grade. And then my parents moved away and I ended up going to, to boarding school. My dad was a professor and he was visiting at Cornell and didn't know whether he would stay in my ninth grade year. So I was sent to boarding school. You know, I've come to appreciate through this series the tremendous uh, professional serial correlation there is with academics because time and time again, I wind up learning that one of my guests who's a professor, uh, that one or both of their parents were also academics. So you join that group. Yeah, I think that I've seen some statistics about how that's unusually the case for for economists, that economists are even more likely to have academics as parents. Oh, is that right? So that's why I've seen it so much then in this podcast series. Yeah, that could be. So um, then you moved off to college at Harvard. Is that right? Yep. And you studied economics and graduated from Harvard College uh, with a bachelor's degree in, in 1989? Yep, that's right. And so that that means that you're a youngin, because, <laughs> at least relative to me, because in one year earlier in 1988, I had already joined the faculty at uh, the Kennedy School, having graduated with the PhD. But you went for your PhD to a different institution in Cambridge. That's right. I went to MIT. I actually, after I graduated from college, I worked for a couple of years. So that was a little bit unusual at that time, not to go straight through to the um, PhD program, a PhD program, but I, I found it super valuable. I actually worked for the Department of Public Utilities in Massachusetts, the regulator for the energy sector, and learned a, a ton, both about economics, but also about kind of the politics of, of 
energy regulation. And so what was your function at the Department of Public Utilities? I was a rate analyst. Uh huh. So I would review uh, filings that the utilities put in for requests for, for rate increases and would go to the hearings. And, it, you know, it's really, I, I have made this case to a number of undergrads. I think if you go into government straight out of undergrad, you get a lot of responsibility, basically, mm-hmm. you're kind of capable and um, willing to put in the, the work. There are a lot of things to do. So you're given responsibility. And as a rate analyst at a public utilities commission, you were at the sweet spot of their responsibility and activity. Yeah, there was a lot going on. There was a lot going on, both in terms of rates and also energy efficiency was a big deal. And people were talking about energy efficiency programs. So I, I, I learned a ton and really had a blast. And then went back to school, as you said, at MIT, did a PhD in economics. What was your dissertation on? My dissertation was on the British electricity industry. It Uh was kind of a conversation stopper at cocktail parties for a little (laughs) while. But then the California energy crisis hit, and and I was able to tell people, well, Britain did the same thing as California, but didn't have a crisis. And who were your uh, dissertation advisors? Paul Joska was my uh-huh. advisor, also Nancy Rose, and uh-huh. I, I spoke to Dick Schmollenzi as well. I basically went to grad school knowing I wanted to, to work with Paul, so everything worked out as, as planned. And both Paul and Dick separately have been previous guests on this podcast series. So what was your first position out of graduate school? Out of graduate school, I was hired at the Harvard Economics Department as an assistant professor and and spent four years there before I moved to UC Berkeley. So you're at Harvard until through 2000, is that right? And then you go on to directly to the Haas School at UC Berkeley? Yep, that's right. And you have remained there essentially ever since with some leaves of absence we'll talk about. So obviously, it's a place that suits you and you suit them. Yeah, no, we, we moved across the country with a two-month-old and now have a have a 22-year-old. So wow. um, yeah, it, it's been a good run at Berkeley. Now, a- along that way, those couple of decades, you took time out for government service from 2021 to 2022 as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Climate and Energy Economics at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. How did that come about? That basically came about because I reached out to Janet Yellen. I saw that she had been appointed to be Secretary of Treasury, and I knew that some of our colleagues in the past had served a role in Treasury that was related to energy and environment. So Billy Pizer had that mm-hmm. role, Gib Metcalf and Matt Catchin. So I, I basically reached out to Secretary Yellen, um, as, as we refer to her at, at the Treasury, and said, you know, I know there's been this position. I know it disappeared in the Trump administration, but if you think about reinstating it, I'd, I'd love to be considered for the position. Oh, that's marvelous. Now tell me, of your time there, can you refer to like one high point and maybe as well what might be as interesting, one low point? Sure. Um I mean, the, the high points were pretty high, I would say. I had a, a wonderful time there. It was really the, you know, honor and, and thrill of a lifetime. Again, I would I would highly recommend government service to mm-hmm. anybody who's, who's interested. 
I would say the high point was definitely the work on the price cap on Russian oil. That was the the main thing that I spent time on in the last 10 months of my time at Treasury Mm -hmm. and was absolutely fascinating from so many different perspectives. I mean, for one, I, I learned a lot about foreign diplomacy, or I guess I should say that I observed foreign diplomacy in action. I'm, I'm not sure that I could do it in the same way that the people that I was with were, were, were able to get things done. Um, but really a, a, a you know super rewarding professional experience. Now, those people who were engaged in um, diplomacy, were they within the Treasury Department or were these pe- people in the state or some other part of the government? Yeah, we so Treasury worked with state, but the people I worked most closely with and the, the people I'm thinking of were mm-hmm. the, the people at Treasury. Um, uh-huh. So I did a lot of work with the Assistant Secretary for Terrorism Financing and Financial Crimes, mm-hmm. uh, a woman named Liz Rosenberg, with Wally Adiemo, the Deputy Secretary. He was very involved and I traveled abroad with him a couple of times um, and just, you know, seeing Secretary Yellen in action. Mm-hmm. She's a real amazing leader. With, with an incredible number of contributions, right, in different parts of the government over several administrations. It's a rem- remarkable career. Yeah, the trifecta. Yes, CIA, exactly. And, yep, Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, so that was a high point, and it sounds like a very high, high point. What about a low point during your experience there? Yeah, I, I got a little bit frustrated I hadn't realized before I went to government just how deep the rift is between the progressives and and the economists. Uh I got the sense that there were some people um, who would rather see no climate action than see a carbon price that Mm -hmm. absolutely just despise the idea of of a carbon price. So I I was very supported and, and felt very in sync with colleagues at Treasury, for sure, but but did not always see eye to eye with other colleagues in the administration. So these were people who were not necessarily in the Department of Treasury, but in other departments and agencies? Yeah, yeah. So that's a high point and a low point of your time in government. I'm sure we could talk about it for, you know, easily an hour, but let's turn to your to your scholarship and your activity in the scholarly world of energy and environmental economics. I I know this is an unfair question like asking you about your favorite child, <laughs> but I I always like to ask this, what's the one research publication that you are most proud of, Catherine? Yeah. So I've listened to your podcast in the past and I I knew that this question was coming. Mm -hmm. Um, It is like picking your favorite child, which is, which is cruel. But so I I did love my job market paper, my dissertation topic, but Mm -hmm. I think probably the one that, that I will talk about for these purposes is a paper that I wrote with Ken Lee and Ted Miguel on rural electrification in Kenya and, you know, I guess I made a pivot in my research career and really became more and more interested in studying energy use in the developing world. And so that was kind of the first big paper that, that we wrote um, that, that, you know, I wrote with Ted McGellan mm-hmm. and Lee. And I guess I'm, I'm kind of proud of the, the pivot that I made to um, studying energy in the developing world because, you know, when I started work on that project with with Ken and Ted, it was 2012. 
there really weren't that many people in the energy and environment space that were working in development, and there weren't that many people in the development economics community working on energy. Now, now that you've mentioned that paper, um, I bet there are a number of listeners who would like to obtain a copy. What's the best way for them to locate it? So it came out in the Journal of Political Economy. Mm-hmm. Um, it should be linked from my website, although I must admit I haven't I haven't checked in a little while. But get it from the JPE website or from. And what do you remember? What year it came out oh, in God. the JPE? I think. 2019, but it might be 2020. It's 2019 yeah. plus or minus a year or two. That's that's good enough for the purpose of people locating it. So let's turn to the the current world of U.S. policy. So tell me particularly what what's your reaction to something we've seen in the Biden administration's climate change policy, um, which is the Inflation Reduction Act. It's a very important part of it. What's your assessment? Yeah, the Inflation Reduction Act, I I would say going into government, I I was going to Treasury. And who would have known that Treasury would be basically the the central clearinghouse for all of the the Mm -hmm. kind of really important, not all, but but a lot of the really important energy and environmental issues. We talked about the price cap, and then I would say that the Inflation Reduction Act was certainly the kind of momentous climate policy issue. And as you know, a lot of the Inflation Reduction Act um, is being implemented through tax credits, and and that's Treasury's purview. So it was not my office within Treasury. It was another office, the Office of Tax Policy, but I was definitely in a lot of meetings about uh, the – you know, what started out as the Build Back Better Act and became the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, so that was really fun to see and, and is certainly a momentous piece of legislation. Now, historically, and perhaps traditionally or conventionally, um, e- economists have favored carbon pricing uh, policies as a way to address climate change, but on the stick side as opposed to the carrot side, in other words, taxes or cap and trade systems, um, not subsidies. And yet we're now seeing that subsidies are playing a very important role in U.S. climate change policy. And from what I've been reading, it looks like they're going to very soon in EU and UK climate change policy. Um What's your thinking on that? I think there's some people who draw the conclusion that, yeah, the fact that the Inflation Reduction Act passed and involved subsidies means that, as you said, the whole world might might shift to subsidies. I, I don't take that lesson. I basically think the Inflation Reduction Act passed because Joe Manchin wanted it to pass. And so we can't draw a grand theoretical conclusion about the the political economy of subsidies versus taxes. All we learn about is basically one person, Joe Manchin's preferences. And if Joe Manchin had been a different person and had favored a carbon price, I think we would have had a carbon price. So um, I, I know that the EU and the UK are talking about subsidies in response to the Inflation Reduction Act, and we can talk right. about these important climate and trade issues. But yeah, subsidies are expensive. I, I I see even potentially going forward in the U.S. that as fiscal constraints bind, as mm-hmm. interest rates go up, 
I mean, maybe I'm being the kind of dumb economist that keeps beating her head against the same wall, but I, I would not call carbon pricing dead. I could see it coming back in some form, maybe not the economy-wide carbon price that textbooks favor, but maybe something that starts, for instance, with the industrial sector that, that starts on a more limited scale. And, and the IRA does include a tax, namely the methane fee. It does. It does. The methane fee, as soon as the EPA writes regulations on methane, the methane fee will phase out. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think that that's, that's important, that as long as... Um, you know, something isn't touching customers directly that, that um, our, even our Congress can do a, a carbon price or a greenhouse gas emissions price. Now, from what I saw, even once the regulations are in place, the methane fee would still apply for any sources that themselves are not in compliance with the regulations. Isn't that the intention? Yeah, that sounds right. That sounds okay. right. Okay. So you mentioned uh, trade and environment, international trade. And I know you're interested in that area. And um, I know you're writing uh, an interesting paper with Kimberly Clausing from uh, UCLA. Um, I'd like to just ask a a basic question, because this is way outside of my area. And that is, do you see climate policy and trade policy as complementary or as antagonistic or of something between, what's your what's your perception and assessment? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually think that policymakers have a choice that that they can do things that will make them complementary. I think they could be very complementary, but mm-hmm. they could also do things that will make them at odds with one another. Um, can you give us an example of both of those? An example of complementary that the world consumes are traded, or sorry, 25% of the emissions are tied to, to traded goods. Mm-hmm. And so, so for instance, think about right now, we talked about methane, Let, let's, let's kind of go down the methane um, mm-hmm. hole a little bit. So Iran and Iraq are really big methane emitters in, mm-hmm. in their production of oil and natural gas. And I don't really see a way to get those governments to pay attention to their methane emissions without doing something about their exports. I see. Um, something like, you know, a, a border adjustment where mm-hmm. we say we don't want to import oil or natural gas from Iran and Iraq um, unless the governments find a way to get the the oil producers and the natural gas producers to clean up their act and reduce the methane emissions associated with, with those, um, with those exports. So, you know, I think that's where countries like all the countries that have signed the global methane pledge can kind of collectively get together and, and use their power as consumers in international trade to affect change in, in countries where we might not otherwise see change. So an MBAM, yeah, essentially. Yeah. Or, okay. you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a price adjustment. We could say until Iran and Iraq have, have uh, regulations in place or mm-hmm. until some kind of threshold uh, is met, then we don't want to import from them. Um yeah, that we can we can go. Yeah, I don't I don't want to go too deep into what the regulations right. or, or mechanism would look like, but I think there are 
a couple of different options. So that's a great example of how uh, trade policy and climate policy can be complementary. What about how they might unfortunately become antagonistic? Yeah, so I worry about this subsidy versus taxation issue. So, you know, right now, I, I would say that the EU and the U.S. are equally ambitious, you know, both on track to hopefully meet our nationally determined contributions. But mm-hmm. the fact that we're taking the subsidy route and they are, you know, they've subsidized in the past, but they also have a, a pretty high price on carbon through their right. the European Union's emission trading system. So I guess I worry that there's a, a future that evolves where the European Union gets pressure from its industry and loses enthusiasm for its carbon price. And mm-hmm. so, you know, the the competitive pressures from industry that are seeing these subsidies over in the U.S. and, and thinking of moving to the U.S., um, that that causes the EU to, to backtrack on climate policy just because we have these different approaches to reducing emissions. You know, ours subsidizes, that's attractive to industry. There's, there's taxes, that's not as attractive to industry. So, so putting those together and, and, and much more broadly, actually, um, are you left being optimistic or pessimistic about future progress on climate change policy? I'm thinking both in the United States, but you know, just as importantly or more importantly, globally. I, I tend to be an optimist, I think, by nature. So I'm, I'm optimistic that we can figure things out and work together with, with the European Union. I mean, coming back to the the price cap, mm-hmm. this might not seem like a you know natural analogy, but I really saw the the power of people working together um, and and foreign diplomacy. So I think you know if if the the G seven countries can get together and figure out how to put a price cap on Russian oil, so hopefully the G seven countries can get together and figure out good ways to use their their presence in the international trade community to address climate change. I mean, it's striking, Catherine, that your time in government is a source of optimism, whereas sometimes one would think that people that spend a short time in government, it might make them pessimistic, but it could, did quite the opposite for you. Hopefully that's not, you know, a, a one-off um, experience. I, I really had fun and kind of saw the diligence of the people that devote their careers to government. And, and I, I remain optimistic about the, the power of, of diplomacy. So that naturally leads to my final question, um, which I ask you both as a, you know, as a scholar in this area, as someone now with substantial experience in government, and also on a personal level, as a parent, um, and that is, what's your reaction to the youth movements of climate activism? I mean, starting in the year 2019, approximately, we saw a tremendous rise in activism from students. And I'm not talking just about Greta Thunberg, but um, much more broadly, largely in the United States and Europe. It, it went into hiatus somewhat with the pandemic. But then in 2022, it was back and quite prominent uh, both in terms of demonstrations in Europe, in the United States. Um, what's your reaction to these youth movements of climate activism? 
Yeah, I think that's another thing that that gives me optimism. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I, I guess I feel like we're not going to address climate change unless we just insist that policymakers pay attention to it. And I feel like, you know, if it takes throwing tomato juice at paintings or Greta Thunberg sailing across the Atlantic, I, I think that's just holding everyone's feet to the fire and, and kind of insisting that that we make this an important principal topic of, of our attention. But And then what I always wonder, and I'm interested in your reaction to this, is whether the this current generation of youth activists, whether this is a cohort effect or an age effect, as these people um, get older, rather than demonstrating outside of the climate negotiations, will they be the negotiators inside the negotiation? Or is it an age effect? And as they get older, um, they will become more conservative and be less concerned. What, what's your best guess on that? Oh, I think it's probably a little bit of both. Uh I I do think that as you get older, you get, you know, more jaded. You've seen things happen. You're less um, inspired maybe to to change the world. But, you know, I also think that as those, that the people who are in their early 20s now, the Gen Zers Mm -hmm. of the world, you know, my kids, as they get older, the effects of climate change are that much more pronounced than... I, I doubt they'll lose their zeal. I, I think it, you know, it's it's going to depend on how successful we are over the next five, ten years, um, responding to their their calls for action. Because if if we don't, I think, you know, it's not going to take an activist. I think everyone's going to be focused on the the effects of climate change. Well, that's a very good place to bring our conversation to a close, both with a note of optimism and also encouragement for the youth of movements of climate activism. So thank you very much, Catherine, for having taken time to join me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So our guest today has been Catherine Wolfram, the Cora Jane Flood Professor of Business Administration at the Haas School of Business at the University of California, currently on leave as a visiting professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School. Please join us again for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.com. .hks.harvard.edu